tonight, now I don't know if this is going to be a series, we're just going to go as the Lord has instructed, it may very well be, but I'm going to try to preach everything I have tonight, and then I get filled up with some more next week, that's what I'll preach. If not, we'll be moving on to something else. I have a few other things that I, I'm itching to get to, but I move in the Lord's timing. The, there was a, a, sort of a little bit of an emphasis recently, we were talking to Pastor Diana, put on, we were, we were discussing a particular subject, and she made a, a, a comment. She said, maybe you should preach that on Wednesday. And uh, unbeknownst to her, that was right along the, the veins of what the Lord had been talking to me since last week. So it wasn't coincidental, but uh, we're going to talk about it. So if I have, a, if I have a, a title for tonight's message, it's going to be The Work of the Ministry. We're going to talk about the work of the ministry tonight. Um, there's been, none of us, unfortunately, have lived in a world where there was no religion of Christianity. And because of that, We've all, whether we intended to be or not, have been affected by the religion of Christianity. Even if, we were, even if this is the first church you've ever been in, you had a, a, an idea of what Christianity was going to be like because the religion sprang up and took over the world. And there's a lot of good that, that's done. I'm not necessarily speaking against that. Religion itself is not a good thing, but the spread of Christianity always is. But there's an issue that arises when religion comes into play, and that is doctrine and rules, regulations, and cultures and traditions begin to dictate behavior instead of the Holy Spirit, who is always the one who was to guide, to lead, to instruct. Jesus established his church the way he wanted it. And anything that's broken or wrong in the church is not because of him. It's because of people that have not obeyed him at different times. And you can go all the way back through history and see that. The devil went to work immediately after the formation of the church to bring religion into it. Because if he can't stop a thing, he'll try to infect it. And then the infection spreads along with the ministry. So when we talk about ministry, uh, many people automatically assume pulpit pastor, evangelist, prophet, apostle, that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. I may not be able to get to all of that, but ministry in and of itself is not that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would argue that that is the, that's the smallest percentage of ministry is pulpit ministry. The smallest percentage of the ministry of the church is done in the pulpit because it has a very specific purpose to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So everybody can't be a pastor. Everybody can't be an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, or a teacher. Because if everybody is, then nobody is. And Jesus didn't set it up that way. But he did put every single believer in ministry. So the question is, what is ministry? And what is your ministry? And how does it differ from someone else's ministry and all that good stuff? Now, if I could, if I was in a situation 
where I could only have one book of the Bible out of all 66 books, if I could only have one. And there are some people who are in that situation overseas where they're tearing out pages of the Bible because they can't carry a Bible without getting killed. Thank God we don't live in that country. But you must always be vigilant because the devil would love to do that here. But if I could only have one book of the Bible, one that would be the toughest choice ever. I'll tell you that right now. But if I could only have one, I would argue that I would love to have the book of Ephesians. It's only six verses. But it's such a perfect letter. It's such a perfect explanation of the plan of God from the beginning to the end. And as a tool for practical living, it's really, really hard to beat it. If you look in my Bible, now my Bible's marked up all over the place, but the most marked up book I have is Ephesians. I think it was that way in my old Bible and the one before that. Every time I read that book, I mark that book up. I got more notes in the margin in Ephesians than any other Bible, any other book. It's just, it resonates with me on such a level. I think if I, could have, if I had the book of Ephesians, I could go from sinner to saved to working in the ministry to equipped for spiritual warfare all in one book. That's my personal opinion. You might have another one. Some of y'all might say Song of Solomon. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but for my money, I could only have one book. I'd want the book of Ephesians. So we're going to be in the book of Ephesians tonight. And it's a short book, so the temptation was just to start at chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way to the end. But that'll take a couple hours to preach, so I'm going to jump around a little bit. But before we go to the book of Ephesians, I want to go to Luke chapter 22. Now, let me ask you a question. And anyone, anyone who's brave enough to answer it, answer it. Would you like to be a part of Jesus' early ministry? Would you like to be there at the feet of Jesus in the, in the upper room at the Lord's Supper? Now, don't, don't, don't. It's not a trick question. It's just an honest question. If you could be somewhere in history, if they built a <laughs> having a conversation with some friends, and we were talking about time machines, and, you know, if you're black, you can only go back to about 1982. <laughs> Let's just be honest. If they built a time machine, we ain't going back but so far before we stop feeling safe. <laughs> you know, ain't too many people going back to Mississippi in the 60s. Let's just keep it real. <laughs> we got about 30 years we can go back before we go, mm, nope. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's a true statement. No lies in America. But if you could go back in time 2,000 years to Israel, to Jerusalem, and sit in that room, would you do it? If you could take the place of one of those 12, and take, if you could take Judas's spot, you know Judas didn't make it, so if you could take his spot, get in there early, would you do it? Would you do it? Everybody shaking their head, no, don't nobody want to do it. Why not? You bunch of cowards, what's wrong with you? You don't want to go back there, why not? What happened to them that you don't want to happen to you? Ah, 
Yeah, you can start naming. Some of them got crucified, hung, burned, stabbed, stoned, beheaded. You know? Let me ask you a question. What if I told you that that's still happening today? Certain parts of the world, they still beheading Christians. They still stoning them. They still shooting them just for being Christians, just for preaching Jesus. You don't live in a world where that doesn't happen. You just gotten used to America, that's all. Secondly, what if I told you that isn't the real reason you don't want to go back? I'm going to try your heart a little bit. I'm going to tell you the real reason you don't want to go back. Because Jesus didn't have a big church. And you like big churches. That's why. Jesus had 12 dudes. And they just walked everywhere. And did all the ministry themselves. Now, he had other disciples beyond those 12 apostles. But he only had 12 in that upper room. And those other disciples were a small group of people among the thousands of people that heard him. See, when you hear Jesus preaching to the multitudes, you got to understand something. Jesus was a novelty. Multitudes followed him because of the miracles and they stuck around for him to preach, but they didn't get saved. They they ate their fish and loaves. They got their grandmama healed and then they left. And every time Jesus drew a big crowd like that, that's what happened. Jesus didn't have a big church. And then when he got crucified, his church shrank even more. He had like two women and John. And the real reason you don't want to go back there is because you don't want to be in a church that small. For those of you watching online, that's why. Because religion, the religion of Christianity, has built massive cathedrals and filled stadiums. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not speaking against big churches. But Jesus built his church with the loyalty of 12 men. He built his entire church on the loyalty of a small group of people, not on the ability to reach large groups of people. For a couple of centuries, it was illegal to be a Christian. You were caught, you were killed. You were murdered. You were violated in many different ways. It was not a popular thing. Now everybody in their mom was a Christian. By, in name only. And we have lost the spirit of the small church. See, there's a... Do you mind if I close this door? Because that, that music is, is distracting. I know it's hot in here. They're going to do something about this air conditioning. I'm a musician, and when there's music playing, I can't not hear it. And then I start dissecting it in my head, and I'm hearing chord changes, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to focus. Thank you. The, go to, what are we, Luke 22? Let's just read it. I want to show you something that the Lord showed me and challenged me on as the chief qualification for ministry. Now, these are in red. These letters are red, so that means this is Jesus talking. Luke chapter 22, verse 25. Now, they're, they're in the upper room. They're at the Passover meal, the Last Supper, as we call it. It's not really the Last Supper, but the last one before. The last one of the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is about to be cut. 
Verse 25, Luke 22. And Jesus said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so. That's a command. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For what is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or sits down to eat, or he that serveth? It's not he that sitteth at meat. But I am among you as one that serves. Jesus just set the primary criteria for ministry. That if you are to be in a position of authority in his church, not the religion, not the organization of Christianity, but in his church, I want to divert our attention back, not divert because diversions lose their power. I want to refocus your attention back to the fact that the church of Jesus is spiritual. It's the kingdom of God in the earth. You can go to church all your life and not be a part of Jesus's church. Jesus's church's rules never changed. Jesus's church's criteria never changed. We don't set them. We can't change them. We can follow them or not follow them. But just because you're a member of a church organization does not mean you are a part of Jesus's church. Amen. Jesus will not judge you by your participation in your local church. He will judge you by your commitment to his church. I need to make that clear. Because people have made careers out of church. Because they're organized. Nothing wrong with organization. You need to be organized. God is a God of order. I'm not speaking against the organization of church. I'm saying that you can do well in organization and never serve Christ. People have turned the pulpit into a career goal, an end goal based on a series of tasks. I've been faithful for this many years. I've done this job. I've done that job. I've done that job. I believe that I'm qualified to stand in this position. And that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, you are called to a thing or you're not. And you, you don't get called because you served, because you worked in a department for so long. Because you can work in a department and never serve. Because service, according to Jesus, is dependent on your ability to submit as the lowest person on the totem pole. Now I'll tell you a little story about me. I am the pastor's son. I've always been the pastor's son. I can't not be, nor am I ashamed to be. Growing up, I displayed a talent for public speaking that I didn't really care about because I actually, I didn't like speaking in public, to be honest. If you knew me as a kid, I was very quiet, very quiet kid. I was not outgoing, I was not loud, and I really didn't like talking in front of people. I practiced it over years and years of practice. 
But when I did it, I did it well. At least I thought I did. I don't care what y'all think. When I, when I embraced music as my calling at 12 years old, I went all in. And the only reason I did is because the church needed a piano player that was competent. We had a couple of people trying, but they were not competent. But for the first several months of me joining the band, I didn't get to play. I had to show up. We had, we had two rehearsals a week, and they would go all night because Dad didn't understand time back then. And if you were in, if you were in Rapture back in, the, back in those days, church was from 945 to whenever. And those band rehearsals, we had them twice a week, Tuesday and Thursday, and they went till Dad was done. They started at 6 or 7, and sometimes he was getting out at 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know I was getting rebuked. Or <laughs> she know my mama know the truth, and uh, I think it took that long because we weren't that good, to be honest. But I would get there because I couldn't drive. I was a, I was a kid, so we would get there a couple hours ahead of time, dad, dad and I, and I would set everybody's equipment up. Now I'm in the band but I'm not playing anything. Everybody, all my friends was in the band. My, my peers were in the band. I just set up, I set up their equipment and then I would sit on the side and just watch all night long. My keyboard was there, but I couldn't play it. Not because I didn't know how. My dad wouldn't let me for a season. He said, it ain't time yet. You just set everything up. And I did that for months probably about six months or so. Two rehearsals a week, every week, for at least five or six months. And didn't touch a single note on a single keyboard. And I was just as happy. And it was at that age that the Lord began to develop my heart as a servant. That I took joy in just being a part of the thing. When everybody else got there, all that stuff was set up by me. I was the I was the glory I was the roadie. If you if you're in the music business, you know a roadie is just a guy who follows the band around and sets all the equipment up. Nobody respects the roadie, but I didn't mind being a roadie because I was doing what I could do. I was doing my part, and I was content there. Finally, I started playing and operating in my gifts, and it didn't take long before I was the band director and then the music director, and then the minister of music, and so on and so forth. But it was at that age that I began to understand, and I believe that God used my father to teach it to me, but it was at that age that I began to understand the grace of a servant is that you are completely at peace in your role for however long you are in that role. It's not that you will not desire or be willing to serve at a higher level. It's that you have no ambition to do so. See, ambition is dangerous in, in, in ministry. Ambition is dangerous because it masquerades as a desire to serve more. But it's always going to be motivated by discontentment. I'm not happy where I am. I want to do more. I'm not happy where I am. And you have to question that motivation. 
You have to question that motivation. Why am I not happy? Why do I feel like I need to be doing more? What's so special about me that needs to do more than this? Nothing wrong with promotion. God is a God of promotion. I'm not saying run away from promotion when it's offered. What I'm saying is your heart should always be, if I don't do anything more than this for the next 40 years, I'm just as happy as I am today. And you discipline your heart to that. Because when you can be content where you are for an indefinite period of time, then God knows he can promote you. And if 20 people get a promotion over you, doesn't matter. Am I being effective where I've been placed? That's all that matters. In small ministries like ours, there's a temptation to feel like there isn't enough to do or there isn't enough to get involved in. There isn't enough exposure and things like that. As you pass, I got to talk to you. Right. But here's the thing. Imagine being in a 13 person church. Where every amount of exposure was a threat to your life. You would you would yearn to be here. Imagine having to meet in secret in people's living rooms, listening at the door to see if there were soldiers coming to kill you and your family. We don't know how easy we have it. We want numbers because numbers represent success in ministry to the religion, but not to Jesus. That's why Jesus didn't appear to 5,000 people after his resurrection. That's why Jesus didn't walk around exposing his resurrection to as many people as possible. Because he wasn't about numbers. He was about servants. He wanted, he desires, and he will only qualify servants. We don't serve for the purpose of promotion. We serve to serve. And I'll tell you this, if you consider pulpit ministry or some other form of public facing ministry as a promotion, you're only half right. Because while it may be a promotion in authority or responsibility, it's actually a higher level of humility and service because now where you could care about you and yours, you have to have that same heart for everybody else. Amen. You're no longer given the luxury of being an individual. I can't pray for me and my wife and my family. I have to pray for every one of you. I can't. There are things that I'm allowed to do that aren't expedient for me to do because I represent you. That you can do. There's a lot of things you give up for this type of ministry. This isn't the only type of ministry. But there are a lot of things that are given up that aren't talked about because people think there's a celebrity status. And celebrity is not all it's cracked up to be. And trust me, we are not celebrities. You know. But, but if you got 10 people in a room, somebody's trying to be number one. It don't have to be a big crowd. It just has to be a crowd. 
And the Lord placed this on my heart because for a long time, we have sought to expand in number. And the Lord has been saying to me, expand in service. If everybody in the room expanded in service, they wouldn't notice the number of people. See, see, you know, when you have a financial need, what do we always tell you? Don't look at your finances. Look at the word. Look through the eye of faith at the wealth that God has laid up for you. We tell you that. You got a medical need, what do we tell you? Don't listen to the doctor's report, listen to the word. Focus your faith on the word of God says, not on what the doctor's saying. Well, if we have a need to have more people, why do we look at these empty chairs? Why don't we apply that exact same wisdom, that exact same position to everything else? We apply it to finances, we apply it to healing, we apply it to relationships. We don't apply it to this church. We look at this room and we say, man, look at all these empty seats. But when I look in this room, I don't see empty seats. I see the people sitting in their seats that are here. And, the, and those of you online, I see you too. And I take very seriously, just like Pastor Diana does, the soul of every person in this room, even if it's just one person. I will not violate the grace of God on me because it'll cost your soul. You should be able to trust your pastoral leadership just like you can trust God himself. That doesn't mean we're flawless, but it does mean we are focused. And that is a mentality you learn long before this. Because you have to be willing to be humbled far below your people to lead your people. A shepherd is not a respectable position. In the Old Testament, if you looked at how they talked about shepherds, they were not highly. Remember David and his brothers and how they talked about him because he kept his father's sheep. Oh, he just, he be out there in, in the woods with the sheep. We are soldiers. They disrespected him because shepherds were not, were not a respectable job. You were dirty. You were you slept out in the elements. You, you were closer to the sheep than you were to human beings. That hasn't changed. When there's a spiritual attack on this ministry, who do you think the devil goes to first? You think it's you? It's not. I'm saying this to tell you, check your heart for ambition. Godly ambition drives you to a lower level of humility, or I should say a higher level of humility. Godly ambition drives you to serve more than it drives you to promote. Godly ambition challenges self-promotion. Godly ambition will have you go to the cross for your brethren without any expectation of return. And when your heart can be put into that place, then God can trust you with more exposure and more opportunity and more authority. And I'm still learning that lesson. There are things that I want to say that I feel I could get away with saying. 
But I have to check everything that I say to you. Because I'm responsible for every word that comes out of my mouth. You know, I said last night, I like to shoot guns. Who knows the, the four laws? Every shooter must know. One of them is you are responsible for wherever the bullet lands. When you pull the trigger, you are personally responsible for wherever that bullet lands. You can't take a bullet back. Once it leaves that barrel, wherever it lands, you are responsible. Whether it's a misfire, whether you meant to pull it, doesn't matter. If it hits somebody's child, that's on you. If it hits somebody's car, that's on you. It's the responsibility that you, you go to take the concealed carry course, they teach you how to handle a weapon. It's one of the first rules they teach you. Wherever that bullet lands, it's on you. Well, that's how it is in the pulpit. Whatever comes out of our mouth is on us. If we're wrong, we got to be willing to come back and say, I was wrong. Can't have too much pride to doctor it up so we don't ever look bad. We have to be willing to look bad to correct any error so that you get the best word possible. Amen. And that's not always easy because you have to be able to trust that we're hearing from God when we preach. See, anybody can tell you some good advice, but not everybody can hear from God for you. Not everybody has the grace to hear from God for someone else. Most people that think they can hear from God for other people can't. They're just operating on experience and spiritualism. If you know the right spiritual lingo and you've got enough experience in an area, you can give advice that sounds godly. That does not mean you've heard from God. A lot of times the things you think you're hearing from God aren't even for the people you're talking to. They're for you. And it might work for you and not work on that person. Because what that person needs to hear might be something you, God's not graced you to hear for them. And if God does grace you to hear for somebody else, he's going to challenge whether you are prepared to share it by how willing you are to keep it to yourself. Amen. Because it's very tempting to try to direct people's lives where you think they should go. It's much harder to watch someone go away you wouldn't go and say nothing. Because sometimes you don't know what you think you know. The ability to keep one's mouth closed is a lot harder. All right, Ephesians. Let me give you some scripture. I'm speaking from my heart, but I'm also speaking by an unction of the Lord. Let's go to, now I love the way Paul refers to himself. He calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. In the beginning of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, he constantly reaffirms that he is a, a captive of the Lord. Knowing full well what that means. That he is no longer free to do as he pleases. Not because he's been forced into service, but because he has surrendered himself completely to the point where there's nothing Jesus can't ask him to do. That's his mindset. I am the slave of the Lord. Most of us would never think of it that way. And this is the man that preached on grace and freedom and, and, and all that good stuff. But he himself, his personal view of himself where ministry was concerned is I am a slave of the Lord. There's nothing I have that, that, that doesn't belong to him. 
There's nothing that he can't ask me to do. And I am willingly a slave of the Lord. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 8. Unto me, this is Paul speaking, who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I want to focus on Paul's perception of himself. I am the least of the lowest of the saints. Anybody else who is any other saint is higher than me. And unto me has this grace been given. So he can both recognize grace upon himself and operate in that grace and still willingly humble himself to his brothers and sisters in Christ to the point where he would lay down for them and let them walk over him. This is the heart of the kind of grace you qualify for when you're like this. Jesus won't put this kind of grace on just anybody. It's not because Paul could speak well, and he could. It's not because he could write well, and he could. It's not because he was educated, and he was. It's not because of any of that. It's because he took all of that and surrendered it and threw it away and made it useless. Go down to chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. I could preach a whole message on forbearance. Endeavoring, here's, here's what your endeavor should be, to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Peace should be your number one goal, not anything else. If it sacrifices the peace of this, of this body, I should be willing to take the fall, to keep the peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. A lot of alls. But unto every one of us is given grace. So there's no one in this room who is a member of the church of Christ who does not have the grace of God on them. According to the measure of the gift of Christ, that's the Holy Spirit. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Let's go down to verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's the purpose of those fivefold ministry gifts right here. Here's where you know your fivefold ministries are doing their job. That we henceforth be no more children. Remember Pastor Daniel said earlier this year or last year that no more coddling. That's part of the divine mandate of a pastor. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, Christ. In other words, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to make sure 
that we don't get carried around with every new doctrine and every new idea because Jesus understood that religion was on its way. Religion was trying to get in. That's why you got 27 different denominations of Christianity and they all believe something a little bit different because that's what the devil does. He divides and conquers. And the role of the fivefold ministry gift is to prevent that by speaking the truth in love so that you know a false doctrine from the truth. But what is the ultimate goal of that? So that you can do the work of the ministry. Because that's not the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is whatever you're supposed to be doing. Yes, we're in ministry with you, but we're not in ministry. You're, we're not in ministry and you're not. You're in ministry, and our job is to equip you for ministry. Now, what is ministry? Ah, there's a, there's a theme that is repeated throughout the book of Ephesians. Ooh, running out of time. I might not be able to finish this tonight. I thought I would. There's a theme where the Apostle Paul, your homework will be the book of Ephesians, by the way, because it ain't but six chapters. You, got, you can do that. There's a theme that is present throughout the book of Ephesians. Christ is to fill all in everything. You see, the church, the purpose of the church in the earth is to invade every place where the devil previously had power and replace the old kingdom with the new kingdom. I believe it's chapter three or chapter two. Uh, yeah, I believe it's, it's chapter two, I believe. I don't have, I want to take the time to read it all. Where he talks about that principalities and powers are to know that we now know our assignment. That's because up until the new covenant, the devil ran the show down here. The kingdom of darkness was established in the heavenlies and ran the world. And what we've done is let him continue to do that. We've let him continue to do that while we build walls around ourselves and argue amongst ourselves about who is the greatest. And Jesus answered that at the Last Supper in the very beginning of the church. The least of you is the greatest. And every apostle that had a hand in writing the New Testament was the least of their brethren. I'm just laying a foundation here because I see now I'm not going to be able to, to finish. The, 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 the thing that matters most to me is that you re that you repent. You know, metanoia. Change your way of thinking. Right? That you repent of your ambition for self-promotion. And be mindful that that is how the devil destroys. He does that more than any other way. Because the longer you've been in a thing, the more you feel like you qualify for. But let me tell you something. Your nose has been your nose your entire life. And it has never tried to be your hand. 
It'll be your nose till the day you die or Jesus raptures you out of here. Same nose. You can chop it off. You add stuff to it. But you only get that one. And it has not one time come to you and said, hey, you know, your hands, I feel like I can do that job. I can grab stuff. I can, I can grab things, too. I've been, on, I've been a faithful nose for 40 years. Your nose does not care because it's a nose. It's happy to be your nose. It'll smell your last smell. This is not an organization where you climb through the ranks. And if you think of it that way, you're missing it. There's no ranks. You're called. And if you put as much energy into what you were called to do as into the thing you're trying to do, you would walk in your grace fully and you wouldn't have time to do anything else, nor would you desire to do anything else. Now, some of you haven't even begun to walk in your grace, not necessarily because you're overly ambitious, but because you don't have enough. Some of you, God has given you assignments that you're afraid to walk into. We're going to talk about that next week. Because there's a flip side to being overly ambitious. The other side of that is being too afraid to do anything. You become dead weight. Not to us, because we love you. But remember, the organization of... See, I got, I got five minutes. Yo, I, oh, I got more than five minutes. The organization of the church might not have something for you to do right now. But the church always has something for you to do. Jesus's church has something for you to do. If you could see this room in the spirit, it doesn't look like this room. If you could see this room in the spirit, it doesn't look like this room. Whatever you are in the spirit is what you should be walking in. And many of you have not tapped into that because you think, well, I can only do this and the church don't need that. You're thinking rapture doesn't need it. But you haven't asked Jesus what he needs. Your effectual measure to the, to the church might be something that rapture will benefit from at a later time. It might be something that rapture doesn't know it needs until you show it to us. It might be something that is completely different than the thing you've been pursuing all this time. Don't blame rapture, because let me tell you something. Jesus didn't have a children's church either. And you know what their praise and worship was? The 12 of them singing. I believe it's, it's Matthew or Mark. At the end of the Last Supper, they all got up and sang a hymn together. They didn't have a praise and worship leader. They didn't have no, they didn't have no microphone. They didn't have no sound man in the back. It was those men singing together. That was all their praise and worship. All this other stuff is organization. It's not bad. Nothing wrong with it. But you don't need it. You need to be in the room with Jesus. And you need him to tell you what you are. And then you need to pursue that with every fiber of your being for the rest of your life. And literally everything else that, that, that's important to you will be swept under the rug to such a degree that then you'll qualify for it. You will qualify for everything that's important to you when it's no longer important to you. And that's a tall order. That's why Jesus didn't have 50,000 people in his church. Rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do 
to have eternal life. Jesus said, give up everything that's important to you and come follow me. Easy. Easy to say, hard to do. The boy said, well, I don't want to live all that bad. I don't need eternal life that bad. He didn't, know, he didn't know what he was giving up. He saw multitudes of people following Jesus, and he wanted a piece of that because it was popular. He didn't know what he was asking for, just like many of us. We got saved, joined the church. That's it. I'm encouraging you to go back to the beginning. Go back to the upper room and commune with the Lord. Okay, Lord, what am I in the church? Not what, not what am I in rapture? What am I in the church? Because when God shows you that, rapture will benefit. That's all I got. I, I got more, but if I go any further, then I'm going to go way over time. And I did that last week. And you only get two of those a year. And I'm trying to save the next one for around Christmas. So bear with me. Plus, I'm hot. You hot. Everybody's hot. So we're going to go home. Amen.